We're pretty good at putting on fronts, aren't we? We're pretty good at dressing things up and making it seem like things are better than they really are. It's a skill that we have taken years to develop, to be able to put on a front that on the outside that everything is fantastic, uh, when on the inside things aren't quite as perfect as we would like other people to see. And we're really good at it. Uh, we can walk into a room even after things have been chaotic, or we can walk into church, or we can walk into a meeting at work, or we can walk into the classroom at school. And even though uh, stuff is crazy inside of us, or stuff is crazy at home, uh, we're able to put on the front that things are pretty good, and things are going okay. Have you ever been able to answer the phone nice, calmly, and coolly, even though you've just been in the middle of a family fight? We all can do that, can't we? Everyone shut up, grandma's on the phone. Hey, mom. We know how to do that. We know how to put on a front. When furniture makers make furniture, ideally you would make your furniture out of solid wood. You'd take oak or maple or cherry and you'd put that together and you'd have a nice piece of furniture. But to make furniture out of solid wood is expensive to make it that way. It's expensive to buy. And so to make it more affordable, this is a trick that you know about. Uh, They take pressed wood, cheaper wood, and then they just cut a small, thin layer of hardwood called a veneer. And they take that veneer of oak or maple or cherry or whatever the wood is that they want the furniture to look like, and they take that cheaper board and they just glue the veneer right on the outside so that when the furniture is done and it's set up, the desk or the chair or whatever it is, to the untrained eye, it looks like solid wood. And we're familiar with this process. We do it with our furniture. Some of you have done it with your teeth. And the whole idea is that we put a veneer on there that hides what's really going on underneath. And that's how we are. We put a veneer on outside of ourselves that we're content and that everything is going well and that things are just like they should be. But if we were to peel away that veneer, if it was to come unglued a little bit and people could really see what was going on behind the scenes, uh, it's not necessarily as pretty and happy going as we want people to think. In fact, if we're honest, uh, all of us, have this thing that resides inside of us that we don't want to let other people see and we don't want other people to know is there. But it's there in in me and it's there in you. In fact, it's there in all of us. The reality is that somewhere inside of us, no matter what's happening in our lives or in this world, there remains deep inside of us this feeling of, I guess the best word to describe it is discontent. And we don't show that on the outside. On the outside, we smile and and tell everybody that things are great and everything's fine when they ask how we're doing. But inside, there is this sense of just discontentment with how things are. Because we, you know, we thought our family would be further along by now. We thought everyone would have come back together by now. We thought we would have made more money at this point. We thought the business would have taken off a little bit more by now. 
We thought we definitely would have moved out of our starter home by now, or we would have fixed up the kitchen like we were supposed to 15 years ago, and we would have made more money, and we would have been more successful, and we would have had things. Things would have looked a lot different uh, if we had just drawn them out and forecasted the future. And so when we sit in the reality of where we are, there remains in each of us just this feeling of, of, of discontent and, and, and our relationships and where we are and how things are going. And the crazy thing is sometimes it feels like we really shouldn't be discontent, that we should be content with all we have when things are going well. But even when things are going well, this thing just continues to sit inside of us and we're not sure what to do about it. But you know who always seems so content? As we struggle with our own discontentment, you know who always seems so content? Other people, don't they? Other people always seem like they're so content. Like they have it all together. And whenever we have whatever issue it is that we have and we're feeling discontent about money, we can always find someone who seems so content with their money or we're discontent in our relationships. We can always find people that seem so content in their relationships. And we look at other people and we say to ourselves, what is their secret? We come to church and we look around and we find people that we think, man, they really, they must have it all together. Look at them and look at their family. And then we drive home from church and we say to our, our spouse, the people in the car, we're like, what do you think their secret is? How do they have it all together and all figured out? And we feel like there must be some sort of secret to solving this problem. That there must be some measure of knowledge that we could have to go from having this feeling of discontentment within ourselves to being what we want to be, and that is content. And we wonder what the secret is. Well, for many of us, we think we know the secret. And in fact, we think we know the secret so much that we're actually chasing after this secret and we're trying to live it out. We believe... We believe that the secret to discontentment can be boiled down to one word. That the way to solve this problem, the way to move from being discontent to content, the way to move from being unhappy to happy, can be boiled down to just one simple word. And the secret to discontentment or to contentment is more. We believe that. We believe that the secret to being content can be boiled down to just the word more. In fact, there's a statement that pretty much all of us believe in. The more I have, the happier I will be. We believe that to be true. And maybe you're here this morning and you're in full church mode, right? And so you say, oh, I don't believe that to be true. But we do. This is how we live. We believe that if we have more and we have the best, that we will be happier. This is why a lot of good church people secretly play the lottery. Because <laughs> we think this is true. It's why we never believe famous people when they say it's not about the money. Of course it's about the money, David Ortiz. It is about the money. Because you think this is true, and we think this is true. That the more money we have, the happier we will be. It's why we enter into negotiations and we say to ourselves, if I can get someone to pay me $500 for my television, I'll be happy. I just want to get $500 and that's fine. And the second we get that $500, we say to ourselves, 
I should have asked for more. Because we think if we had more, we'd be more satisfied, that we'd be happier. It's why we camp out for the newest version of the iPhone when our four previous versions still work fine. Because we believe this to be true. That the more we have, the happier we will be. And, you know, we think that this is true a lot more than even previous generations thought this was true. We think 50 years ago, the generation ahead of us, or maybe it's the generation two or three ahead of you, they didn't consume the way we consume. They bought things when they needed them. And we buy things when we feel like we need them, when we really want them, but we call them needs. I mean, consider the vacuum cleaner with me, just for a second. 50 years ago, when your vacuum cleaner stopped sucking, what did people do with that 50 years ago? Had it repaired. They had it repaired. That thought would never even cross my mind (laughs) if my vacuum cleaner lost suction. In fact, if we lose one of the tools on the vacuum cleaner, I'm ready to toss it and start fresh. Because we believe that this is true. We believe that the more we have, and if we have the best, and we have the biggest, and we have the newest, that that we'll be happier, and we'll be somehow more satisfied. And we build our homes bigger than ever before. We trade in our cars more often than ever before. We make more money today than ever before. And, And because we think that if we keep moving in this direction, and we consume more, and we have more, that we will be happier. But yet we still have this discontent. Like Benjamin Franklin is quoted as saying, Who is rich? He that is content. Who is content? Nobody. And isn't it true? And the reason is, is that when we believe the secret to contentment is more, and we start chasing more, As long as we are chasing more, as long as we're running after more, as long as we're going after bigger and better, we will never reach enough. As long as we're always chasing after more, we will never reach enough. This is how the writer in the book of Ecclesiastes says it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10. He writes, whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Whoever loves money never has money enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. As long as we are pursuing more, as long as we're chasing more, we will never have enough. And ironically, the more we pursue more, the more discontent we become. Why is that? We have within ourselves different appetites, don't we? We have an appetite to eat, we have an appetite to sleep, we have an appetite for love and affection, and we have an appetite for more. And appetites are tricky things. Because appetites, while they're not bad things in and of themselves, 
left unchecked, they can become very dangerous. Appetites lead us to things that we need. We need to eat. We need to sleep. We need love and affection. We need to have some things. But left unchecked, they become dangerous because appetites are never fully satisfied, are they? You and I could eat the biggest meal we've ever had this afternoon. We could go out and we could eat and eat and eat until we couldn't eat another bite. But just wait about six or seven hours, less if we have Chinese food, (laughs) and you'll be hungry again. We could sleep. Tonight we could sleep the longest we've slept in forever. No one bothers us tomorrow morning. The alarm doesn't have to go off. And we wake up and we are more rested than ever before. Wait a few minutes or wait a few hours. And you'll have to sleep again because appetites are never fully satisfied. And that's the challenge that we have with appetites is that they aren't fully satisfied. That even though we try to fulfill them over and over and over again, eventually we're going to need to fulfill them once more. And the real tricky thing about appetites is that the more we feed our appetites, the more they grow. The more we feed them, the more they grow. The more we stop saying no, the more they grow. You know this to be true. We've seen family members and friends that have gone after a specific appetite, and although it may not be bad in and of itself, they kept going and pursuing and pursuing and pursuing, and they ended up a place they never wanted to be because they couldn't say no. And the appetite kept being unsatisfied. The appetite kept growing. Something happens when we, when we feed our appetites, and people that are much smarter than me say that there's three things that happen. Three things that happen to us when we start to stimulate our appetites. The first thing that happens is we begin to develop what was called an impact bias when our appetites are stimulated. This is why a good, smart waiter doesn't just hand you the dessert menu. He goes and gets the desserts and brings them over to your table. Because the idea is that to stimulate your appetite when you can see and smell and experience those things, you're much more likely to start having an impact bias that will say, I need to have that. It's why when you go to buy a vehicle, the salesperson really wants you to test drive the car. Because if you get in the car and get behind the wheel and experience what it's really like to be in that vehicle, your appetite for that car starts to be stimulated and you start to get a bias in your mind saying, this is the car for me. And the second thing that happens when we stimulate our appetites in those way is that other things, other good options for us begin to fade away. And so we see the car that we want and, and, and the car that we need and our appetite is stimulated and all the other options that we could take, some of them may be better options, start to get blurry and fade away. And the third thing that happens is we begin to create, uh, we begin to overestimate the negative consequences of not getting what our appetite desires. We begin to say, I have to have this car. And if I don't, I won't be happy until I do, right? Teenagers are great at overestimating negative consequences. If I don't have these genes, I will never have another friend in my school ever again. When our appetites are stimulated, this is what happens. And they're never fully satisfied, and they keep growing, 
And so we start with this appetite for more, and we believe that this is the secret to contentment. And so we start going after it, and it just grows and grows and grows and grows. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 6, verse 7. He says, all man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. You know how this plays itself out in our lives? When we feed our appetite for more and it's never fully satisfied, is the things in our life that were once exceptional, once unbelievable, once beyond anything we ever could have imagined before, those things that were once exceptional become expected very quickly. As we chase more and we go after bigger and better, the things that were once so unbelievable and exceptional become expected very quickly. Have you ever gone to donate clothes to Salvation Army or Goodwill? And you start to grab things out of the closet and you think, man, I just, I would never wear this anymore. So you put it in the bag to donate. You didn't always think that about those clothes. There was a day you walked into the store, saw it on the rack, and absolutely had to have it. It was exceptional. But something happens over time. Where what was once exceptional becomes kind of ordinary. Remember when you first got the internet and you would go onto your computer and you would have to make sure no one was on the telephone, right? And then it would dial a number, and then you would have all the beeps and the rushing wind and everything else that, that happened. And then ever so slowly, it would connect, but it was unbelievable. You could communicate with all sorts of people. I remember when I started in high school, we had to start using the internet uh, for research and things. It was, it was unbelievable. The, all of a sudden, the amount of information that you could get, and you didn't even have to go to the library. But imagine if we went to get on the internet right now and we had to wait for that stupid thing to dial and all those tones and beeps, and if someone called the house, we got kicked off of our computer, we would be furious. Because what is once exceptional becomes expected very quickly. It's like the first time I remember walking into a bathroom and they had the accelerator hand dryer. Changed my life. <laughs> you used to have to stand there for everything, but that thing's like a jet engine. You hold your hand onto the, the dryer, and in three seconds, everything's dry. And I remember coming out of the bathroom and saying, they have the most unbelievable hand dryer in the bathroom. <laughs> and it pushes your skin around. It's so strong. The, the air is so strong. And now if I walk into a bathroom and I wash my hands and they have an old hand dryer on the wall, forget it. I'm wiping them on my jeans and I'm going. <laughs> it's not worth my time. <laughs> because what was once exceptional becomes expected so quickly as we chase more. So more can't be the secret to contentment. We believe that it is, and we live in a world that believes that it is. But it can't be the secret to contentment because as long as we're chasing more, our appetite for more will continue to balloon and continue to grow. And we will never, ever reach what is very important when it comes to contentment. And that is enough. So what is the secret to contentment? What are we supposed to do? 
How can we get rid of that sense inside of us, that just piece of discontentment that never seems to go away? Well, there's one phrase, one sentence, two phrases. I believe if we can learn to say it and learn to think it and learn to believe it and learn to live it out, we'll take care of that feeling that is inside of each and every one of us. And there's two parts to this sentence, and we're going to talk about each part separately. And the first part is this. We need to learn to say when it comes to our lives, it is what it is. We need to learn to say when we look at our lives, what we have and what we don't have, and where we are, it is what it is. Are you rich? That's a dumb question, isn't it? You're not rich. You know rich people. You know people who are rich, but we're not rich. Rich is always the other guy. Rich is always the person that has more than us. Rich is always the person that has a little bit more than what we have. In fact, Gallup did a survey. The Gallup organization did a survey where they went to different socioeconomic classes. And they asked each socioeconomic class um, how much money they felt they would need to make in order to be rich. And in every single class, a majority of the people doubled their income and said that was rich. So the people that made $30,000 came back and said, if I made $60,000, I'd be rich. Those are the people who are rich. And the people who are made $60,000 came back and said, if I made $120,000, I would be rich. And the people that made $120,000 came back and said, if I made $240,000, then I would be rich. Because rich is the, always the other guy. In fact, Money Magazine did a follow-up, and Money Magazine asked their readers how much money they would need to make in order to be considered rich. And the readership of Money Magazine came back and said that they would have to make the equivalent of about $5 million a year to actually be rich. And the readership of Money Magazine makes somewhere between, they said, a million and two and a half million dollars a year. But even then, they didn't consider themselves rich because they knew people who were rich. And even though they brought in millions of dollars a year, they knew people who brought in tens of millions of dollars a year. And those were the rich people. Because rich is always a moving line. And the, but the, the problem with, with the fact that rich is always a moving line and it's always out in front of us and it's something that we, we never reach is that we could actually be rich. We could actually be really well off and not even realize it. We could actually be rich ourselves and not even know it. Maybe you remember uh, the story at the end of February about the couple who was on their property in California. And they were walking their property. It was on the local news. It was on the national news. They were walking their property. And they took a stroll, I guess, uh, most days across their property in California. And they noticed this one time when they were walking uh, the top of a container that was buried in the ground. And they pulled it out. Maybe you remember this story. And it was an old, rusty uh, container. And inside the container was the largest find ever of rare U.S. gold coins. And coin experts say that when those, coin, those coins go up for auction, they'll sell at auction for about $10 million. 
And if you're like me, when you first heard that story, you thought to yourself, if these people own a property large enough in California to take walks on it, what the heck do they need $10 million for? And then you thought, why doesn't anything like that ever happen to me? But the crazy thing about that story is that these folks walked their property every single day for years and had no idea how much wealth was right underneath their feet. And I wonder sometimes if we spend so much time thinking that more is going to satisfy us and thinking that other people are content because they have more than us, that we don't take enough time to recognize what we have right underneath our feet. Did you know in this year, 2014, if your household brings in more than $37,000 this year, that you are in the top 4% of wage earners in the entire world? That if your household brings in $37,000 US this year, you're in the top 4% of wage earners in the world. There are 96% of the people that walk the face of the earth that are more impoverished than you. Maybe we have more right underneath our feet than we realize. You know how I know that we have more than we realize? is because I would guess pretty much everyone in this room, a lot of our problems are rich people problems. My cell phone screen cracked. That's a rich person problem. (laughs) My laptop won't connect to the Wi-Fi. That's a rich person's problem. There's traffic, and so I have to sit in the car I own for longer than I want to. That's a rich person's problem. I don't have enough gas money for the car I own. That's a rich person's problem. I don't have the time to go to the storehouse where the food is held that other people grew and processed for me and spend money to get it. I just can't find the time to go there. And when I look in the fridge, all the food that I have in my house, I don't even feel like eating. That's a rich person's problem. (laughs) Open up my closet and I can't even find anything to wear. That's a rich person's problem. We have a lot of rich people problems. We don't feel rich because rich is always someone else. It's always the person ahead of us. But if we want to be content, we would be wise to stop and say it is what it is and recognize what God has already given us. This is how the author of Ecclesiastes puts it at the end of chapter 5. Then I realized that it is good for improper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift from God. This idea of just accepting our lot in life is not something that we're real happy with. It's not something we're real keen on, but it's the first step to contentment. If we're going to be content, then God's word tells us that there needs to be a part of us that is just okay 
with what we've been given and what we've been blessed with and where we are. Now, this is not a sermon and it's not a message against ambition. If we were to take this within the whole context of scripture, we can find many verses that tell us to be ambitious for the Lord and for his kingdom and to accomplish great things. So it's not a message against ambition. There's also a huge push in our culture right now to end socioeconomic inequalities and injustice. And this is not a message saying we shouldn't fight to end inequality and injustice. But if we for a second believe that ending injustice and being ambitious is somehow going to solve the problem of discontent once and for all that resides inside of us, we are going to be sorely disappointed and disillusioned. That's what the author is saying. It's not about being lazy. And it's not about not fighting against injustice. It's about being able to look at what God has given us and where he's put us. And to recognize that our appetite for more will never be fully satisfied and be willing to say, it is what it is. But that's only half the phrase. That's only half the sentence. There's another part of this sentence that's even more important. Another part of this sentence that's even more important to when it comes to the secret of contentment. The first part is to be willing to say and able to say it is what it is. And the second part is this, being willing to say it is what it is because he is who he is. That if we're going to be truly content and truly satisfied, I mean in the depths of our soul, content and satisfied, we need to learn to say it is what it is because he is who he says he is. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he's writing uh, to a church in Philippi in the book of Philippians, a city called Philippi, and there's a church there. And Paul's writing to them in this letter. And Paul is writing from a prison cell. And here's the deal with Paul. Paul knew what it was like to be on top. Paul knew what it was like to be the most powerful. Paul knew what it was like to have all the resources. Paul knew what it was like to be the guy in charge. And Paul also knew what it was like to be the guy that was sitting in a Roman prison cell, rotting, forgotten, and mistreated and abused. This was not cable TV um, visits prison. This is Roman prison that he was sitting in. And in prison, as he's sitting there, Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi, and he says this. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I've been there. I'm there right now. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And he says that, I've learned the secret to contentment. And we want, Paul, what is it? What's the secret to contentment, long life, money, more, security? Paul, what is the secret to contentment? And Paul says this. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because if God is who he says he is, and Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins and invites us to an eternity with him, 
And if we are able to come to that place where we believe that that is true and we know it's true and we're going there, then all of a sudden the things of this earth and the things that this earth has to offer, the more and the bigger and the better and the newest and the latest, all of a sudden become so much less important and we're able to look at the whole big picture with eternity in mind and we're able to say it is what it is because he is who he is. It's why the psalmist David could write, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's why the old hymn writer could say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, because when we recognize that Christ is exactly who he says he is, all of a sudden the things of this earth come into perspective. And we're able to say it is what it is, because this earth is only temporary. And there is something inside of us with that discontent that is eternal. There is a piece of that discontent that's inside of us that's eternal. Earlier in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, the writer says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. And isn't it true? Even the people we know that don't believe God exists at all, they want to exist forever. They want to do something that will last forever. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves that will go on when they're gone. Because there's something inside of us that wants things to last for eternity. We want things to continue to go on. We want things to last forever. And God has put that there. But why do we think that an eternal discontent would ever be solved by things that only last a short amount of time? Why would we ever trust temporary things to solve something inside of us that is eternal? Only that which is eternal could solve that problem, not what is temporary. And so the secret to contentment has nothing to do with more. It has nothing to do with the things of this earth. It has nothing to do with getting more money or buying a build, big, building a bigger house or getting more ahead in our career. It has nothing to do with that. The secret to contentment is to be able to say it is what it is because he is who he is. Because God is in control and he lasts forever. And the person who is truly rich is not the person who has the most. It's the person who needs the least. And just like Paul said, if we have Christ, what else could we possibly need? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we close. And I'm going to invite you to stand, if you would, and just bow your head and close your eyes with me. And I just want us to think about this for a moment as we go. If you close your eyes and just, just consider with this, this with me for one second. You know, maybe you're here this morning. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I have bought into the lie that if I chase after more, I will be happier. I've bought into the lie that, that chasing after more is going to make me satisfied. I'm not talking about godly ambition, that God's put you on a mission, that he's given you a direction, that he's given you a vision that you are pursuing for him. I'm saying in your own flesh and in your own heart, you've decided to go after more so that you can find satisfaction. And this morning, you just need to come before God and you need to say, God, I am sorry. I repent 
from that. Lord, I am sorry that I have put my trust and my security and my contentment in the things of this world. And you just want to spend time in prayer this morning telling God that you're sorry and asking him to redirect your focus back to him. And maybe you're here this morning and all of us have to do this from time to time. All of us forget. All of us forget that because we are headed for an eternity, because this home is not where we live, it's, it, or because this place where we live is not our home, it's just where we're staying for a while, we forget that we have eternity ahead of us. And so we get our priorities all messed up and we start to spend way too much time on the things of this earth. And all of us do it. And time and time again in our walk with Christ, we have to come back and ask the Lord to help us put him first in our life, to ask him to redirect direct our priorities and rearrange what we think is important and help us to spend our time and our focus on the things that matter most. And so maybe you're here this morning and you just want to reaffirm that with the Lord. Say, God, thank you for the reminder that I can look at this world and say it is what it is because I have the only thing I need in you. And as we sing here this last song, I would encourage you to do that in your own heart, to spend time with God, to repent where you need to repent and to confess where you need to confess and to reaffirm your faith and trust in him. Oh, Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning that you are at work in this place. God, we ask that you would forgive us for the places where we have put our trust in this world. God, we actually have thought that getting more things on this earth was going to satisfy our inner longings. And God, I pray that you would forgive us for that. Forgive us for the wasted time. Forgive us for the wasted energy. Forgive us for the wasted hours. God, forgive us for neglecting the things that are more important for the things that only last a short amount of time. And God, we pray that you will help us to focus on the things that are eternal. And God, thank you for the confidence that we can have in your son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died on our behalf and it promises us an eternity with him. So God, help us to see this world for what it really is and the next life for what it really is and help us to live with eternity in sight and to believe that it is what it is here because you are exactly who you say you are. And we pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Let's worship him together as we close this morning. I love you. For our benediction, I, will, uh, I just wanted to read a couple verses in 1 Timothy. This is Paul. Paul talking to Timothy, who is a young man. And Paul giving him some advice, and this is what he said, and I think it's so true for us. Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, O oh man of God, but you people of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It is what it is 
because he is exactly who he says he is. God bless you as you go this morning.